most of the things the word of God is doing is, yes, yeah, teaching us doctrine, but it's doing more reproving and correcting and uh, correcting us to, to walk in righteousness. We also know that it can be sharp in the conviction, huh? In Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living, powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even the divisions of the soul, the spirit, the joints, the marrow, and a discerner. As we read the word, as we meditate on the word, we get a sober dose of reality as that two-edged sword pierces between the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And we realize we have officially sinned or we've done something that's definitely hurt us and probably is sin. But either way, the word of God helps us in Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin. If you're not going to call it sin, that's okay. It's a weight. Either way, you need to get rid of it because it easily ensnares us. Have you noticed how many things easily to ensnare us? That we can run the race with endurance, that race that's set before us. So tonight, as the word of God's been going in, the people are, are now going from how can we obey to we have sinned. So in chapter 9, verse 1, now on the 24th day of this month, the children of Israel were assembled with fasting and sackcloth with dust on their heads. So remember the 15th was the Feast of Tabernacles. It lasted seven days which would take us to the 22nd. And then on the 23rd, the eighth day was to be a great day of celebration. And now we're coming in the next two following days. And as they're hearing the word of God now, they find themselves fasting in sackcloth, in dust on their heads. So it's amazing that they just wanted more that they gathered and, and, and they weren't going home. They were staying there in that very difficult city that was uncomfortable, no doubt. And they found themselves happily troubled by God's word. They realized that their Jewish history was a history of disobedience, of not following God, of disobeying him. David Guzik writes, fasting showed their lowly, humble state. They considered themselves so poor before God that they had no food or they ate no food. They also wanted to say, we are so troubled by our sin, food seems unimportant. And then sackcloth and dust are two things in this culture that was a sign of mourning. The sackcloth is gunny sack. You know, like you put big 50 pounds of potatoes, you know, um, and uh, very itchy, very miserable fabric. And then throwing dust on them. They're not worried about staying clean or looking good. They don't care. They just, nothing matters, but their, their heart of repentance over their sin. So in verse two, then those of the Israelite lineage separated themselves from all the foreigners. And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. This is interesting. They're hearing the word of God that they never should have mingled with the people of the land that God had instructed. Remember back in the book of Ezra? It was a big deal. Oh, my goodness. It was 
this giant country split over people having to send their wives and their kids away and, and away from Israel, out of Jerusalem. It was, it was just, I, I don't know, when I read Ezra, every time I read that, it just puts goose bumps up my neck at how they, it was such a cutting, a difficulty in what they had to do. But this time they weren't told by Ezra, they weren't made by Nehemiah. This is something they did themselves. They just said those who are of the pure race of Israel, Jews, remember some people claim to be Jews, they even claim to be priests, but they were not in the genealogy. Um, uh, you know, it's like Elizabeth Warren saying she's an Indian. Um, <laughs> these guys are saying, oh yeah, we, I come from the priesthood of uh, you know, Aaron. And uh, there was no truth in it. It was an old wives' tale back in Babylon. And, but they come to Jerusalem, try to use that same wives' tale in Jerusalem amongst the pure Israelites there. If, and they're saying, no, no, you don't pass mustard at all. But as they separated themselves to put, give themselves purity, they confessed their sins. What an important step this is. Matter of fact, John writes to the believers, if we say we have no sin, when God's Holy Spirit's convicting, when the Lord's knocking at the door of your heart, when you sense the heavy hand of God upon you, let him mold you. Let him smash you into clay and remold you into the fashion he wants. Don't resist him. And so here the Holy Spirit was saying, you've sinned. Your forefathers have sinned. But in 1 John 1, 8, he said, if we say that we have no sin, then we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But then he quickly says in verse 9, if we confess our sin, which means to agree with. It's interesting, as he doesn't say repent of your sins. This is simply, it starts with an intellectual reasoning. God says that is sin. That's crossing the line, right? Um, I remember when I was five years old, I, I, it was right after Easter, and I stole half of a purple plastic egg because I broke at my house, and I had the other half of the plastic egg, and I was at my friend's, and I took it, and I, I, I guess, you know, I'm talking maybe five years old, I, I did something odd with it, and my mom, as we're driving home, realized I had it, and she's like, you know, she knew I was trying to hide it, is that yours? No, no, no. Did you take it and you didn't ask? Well, you got to go back. And I remember driving back to my friend's house and knocking on the door. My mom made me do that and say, oh, I got to give this back. Half a plastic egg. Um, but I can still remember it. I clearly crossed the line. It may not have been a big deal, but it was a big deal. But if we confess our sins, just agree. Doesn't matter if you fill it or not. You say, God, I wish I did fill it. I don't feel sorry for it. Or I do feel sorry for it. It doesn't matter. I sinned. I, I, I confess my sin. I did it. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. But quickly, he goes back to the thought of verse 8 and verse 10 of 1 John. But if we say that we've not sinned, we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So... This is why I said this is a very important step because 
It's in our human nature to protect ourselves, to lie, to dodge. Were you there? I don't know what do you mean by there. <laughs> you know, how do you define is? That's our human nature. But when God's spirit's moving, we just say, yes, Lord, it is I. I am guilty. It's me. Forgive me. Heal me. Spank me. Cleanse me. Whatever it takes. I want to be right in your sight. Whether anybody else on earth knows it or not, you know it and I know it. I want my heart to be right with you. That's a powerful, powerful work of God's spirit. And they said, not only did they confess their sins, they confessed those of their fathers. Their nation has a history of rebellion, and they followed in their parents' steps. Now, I, I do want to knock down a bad demonic doctrine that's called generational curse or generational blessing or generational sin. And that is that the, the kids are having to pay the price for their parents' sin. I do not believe that. I believe they're interpreting some scriptures very, very wrong. Matter of fact, Ezekiel 18 makes it clear that we're not to do that. But I do want to say that the parents created an environment. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people were raised by a strong Christian parents but then their kids completely walked away from the Lord and they raised their kids, the grandkids, with no knowledge of God. And of course, what are their kids, their grandkids doing? They're not following God. So environmentally, if you would, they are being punished by the sins of their parent or they are without the knowledge of God because of the environment their parents raised them in, right? And the opposite's true. If you have God-fearing parents who are seeking the Lord and, and going to church and, and worshiping God, then the kids are going to do that as well, at least as small children. Eventually, they've got to make it their own. And so he, he's saying that, and, and I, you know, and I just want to talk here, too, that there is such a thing as repentance of a nation. Benjamin Franklin said, seeing that no nation can come into existence without God's, at least his knowledge of it, if not the one who allowed it, if not the one who made it happen. And if the people of that generation, the nation is honoring God, since that nation's not gonna go to heaven or the nation's not gonna go to hell, it's incumbent upon God for that nation to be blessed or cursed within a timely fashion. Right? You, you don't want to punish them for something they didn't, they did wrong, uh, you know, 300 years ago, sort of like the Black Lives Matter are doing now. They're saying, you know, you are the one who enslaved us. And it's like, well, it was our forefathers, yes. So our nation is a national sin, has sinned. And maybe we haven't recognized it. Maybe we haven't repented of it openly to the degree that, that we need to. I, I don't know, I think there's something there. But at the same time, um, if, if there's a need for a nation to repent, 
USA is way overdue, right? And uh, Billy Graham used to say, if God judge Sodom and Gomorrah, he's, he's bound to judge us any time soon. So, you know, again, it's up to us. If, our, if God's people will humble themselves and pray and seek his face, turn from their wicked way, he'll hear from heaven and heal the land. But they stood there and they confessed. They just continued to have this heart of repentance over and deeper and more things being exposed and more things being revealed and, and a greater sense of remorse maybe, maybe a, a greater awareness of what that sin is. Spurgeon said this, repentance grows as faith grows. Do not make any mistake about it. Repentance is not a thing of days and weeks, a temporary penance to be got over with as fast as possible. No, it is the grace of a lifetime, like faith itself. Repentance is the inseparable companion of faith. You know, we don't really see where people had to repent of their sins to come to Christ. When the gospel talks about repentance, he's talking about repent, saying that the law or the Jewish system is sufficient and repent that you need the Messiah. With John the Baptist, they did repent of their sins and he said, look for the Messiah. So I'm not saying it didn't happen, but most of the time in the gospels, um, it's talking about the change of mind from saying I am righteous enough as I am, or I'm righteous enough if I keep the traditions of the Pharisees, or I'm righteous enough through the law of the Old Testament, and, and not repenting and saying I need a savior, I need a Messiah. After that, in the believer's life, repentance, it, it's, it's just something that goes on every day. We, we daily fall short of the glory of God, right? And hopefully the Holy Spirit, that gentle breeze, is constantly speaking to us and stirring us. And we're, yes, Lord, I, I omitted what I should have done there. Yes, Lord, I did something I shouldn't have done there. And, and it's not a, a burden of like God condemning us or something. It's just a beautiful, sensitive heart in tune with the Spirit, wanting the mind of the Lord constantly realizing I'm on sinful body. My tendency is to be selfish and mean and angry and sinful and selfish. And, and, and therefore, Lord, help me, even though I'm in this incredible, impossible flesh that's fighting against you, fighting against the work of your spirit, fighting against the will of God, fighting against the word of God, fighting against going to church, fighting against prayer, Anything holy and righteous that would bear good fruit, my flesh doesn't want it. Okay? So if that's true, then yes, we're just constantly just sensibly going, yes, Lord. I, I got that check in my spirit. Forgive me. Forgive me for not being a servant. Forgive me for not yielding to the, the desire of what you wanted. It's a beautiful thing that goes hand in hand with faith. Well, in verse three, well, they stood up in their place and read the book of the law of the law, the law of the Lord, their God, for one fourth of the day, three hours. And for the another 
Fourth, they confessed and worshiped the Lord uh, their God. So for three hours, they stood in the place and they read the scriptures. And then for the other three hours, they confessed and worshiped God. And I'll tell you, that, that's pretty much what I'm reading the Bible I'm doing. I'm like, Lord, forgive me. Lord, I see. Oh, Lord, I wish I had read this every single day for the last year. I, I wouldn't have made some serious mistakes. Well, in verse 4 now, Then Jeshua, Benai, Kadamil, Shabaniah, Buni, uh, Sherbiah, Bani, uh, Shinani, stood on the stairs of the Levites and cried out with a loud voice to the Lord their God. So these leaders that are leading and the Levites, they cried out to the Lord with a loud voice. And then the Levites and Jeshua, Kadmil, Bani, Hashabani, Sherebiah, Hojai, Shabani, Shabiah, and uh, Pethaniah said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God forever and ever. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessings and praise. And so now they begin to pray. We don't know how this happened. Most believe it's just Ezra praying, but it could be a group of guys. The first thing they say is, you alone are the Lord. Now notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When this happens in your Bible, that means it's the word Lord that's four consonants, Y-H-W-H. It's called the Tetragrammaton. Jews today say Yah or Yahweh. Um, and then the other name for Lord is Adonai, and it's capital L with a lowercase O-R-D. So here they are, they are saying the, the, the name of God, Yah or Yahweh. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens and all their hosts and the earth and everything on it and the seas and all that's in them. You preserve them all and the host of heavens worships you. So they begin this time in praise. So we're getting an idea when they spent that time confessing and worshiping. He's given us a sense here now that they begin with just worshiping God and they're worshiping him for all the beauty and the majesty of all the creation. And, and they're seeing the, the stars and the heavens sparkling, praising God. I, I love that where it says in the trees, and Isaiah said the trees clap their hands. I grew up in walnut orchards. And right around October, uh, we would get some really high winds. And you could just hear all of the branches just clanging, 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 clanging. And it did sound exactly like that. Like they're all just clapping, praising God. And all the birds are singing, praising God. They're just worshiping the Lord. And then he says again, you are Lord, Yahweh, God, who chose Abraham, brought him out of the Ur of Chaldeans. You guys know where that is? That's in Iraq. That's just, if you look at Iraq, sort of the middle of the big city there, Baghdad, just go down south a little ways, and you'll come to Nazaria, Iraq, between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, where many believe that's where the area of the Garden of Eden would have been, which is also where the Tower of Babel would have been tried to be built, but it was also where ancient Babylon was. And so, or would be eventually from here. 
And at this time, this is where Abraham lived, there in, in the, uh, between the Ur and the Chaldees and what's Nazaria, Iraq today, the Chaldeans. In San Diego, we, we have, uh, oh, I don't know, used to be like 40,000. It's probably a bigger number than that now. But they have a distinct uh, community there of people from the Chaldees, uh, from Iraq. And they'll let you know. It's like, are you, where are you from? I'm from the Chaldees. Oh, from Iraq? Well, I'm from the Chaldees of Iraq, yeah. They, they still are very proud from being from the Ur of the Chaldees. And he gave him the name Abraham. Remember, he, he said, well, I guess my servant's going to have my kids, and he'll be my one to inherit all my stuff. And God said, no, go to the stars of the heavens. You see all the stars up there? You're going to have as many kids as that. And it says, and Abraham believed God, and that was accounted to him for righteousness. And he went from Abram to Abraham. God renamed him, which is the father of many nations, because through Abraham and his seed, all the families of the earth would be blessed. It tells us in Genesis 12. You found his heart faithful before you and made a covenant with him to give the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, and the Girgashites to give it to his descendants. You have performed your words, for you are righteous. So God, you have done this. All the hosts praise you. I love David and Psalms 8, when I consider the heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have ordained. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you have visited him? Here he is saying, God, you created all these vast things and all of the universe and all the stars and all of the clouds and all of the beautiful mountains. Everything's giving you glory and praise. And what is man that we're mindful of? We chose a man from the era of the Chaldees, Abram, and you called him Abraham and because you counted him faithful. And then you did all that you promised, you did. In verse 9, you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and you heard their cry by the Red Sea. And you showed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his servants, against all the people of his land. And you knew that he acted proudly against them. So you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. So down in Egypt, Pharaoh is oppressing them. And, you know, it's interesting that wherever you go in the world, they know of this story of Pharaoh not letting God's people go and God finally getting them to agree and the great move of, of Israel. It's interesting. It's one of the most well-known stories. And of the Jews, it's one of the most well-known stories. The Jews, for the most part, are atheists. Very few religion, very small percentage. Smallest percentage of any people that believe in God of a nationality is the Jews. There's more atheist Jews than any other nationality. So they don't know a lot. But boy, they do know this story. This is the main story. And in that, Pharaoh being weakened and finally agreeing, saying, okay, you can go, get out. God showed himself strong through the various plagues that came on Egypt. And then in verse 11, you divided the sea before them, and they went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. And their perse um, the persecutors who threw into the deep 
as a stone into the mighty waters. Moreover, you led them by day with a cloudy pillar, by night by a pillar of fire, to give them light on the road which they should travel. So you brought them through the Red Sea, and then after that, the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. Verse 13, you came down also on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them just ordinance and true laws, good statutes and commandments. So God spoke to them. The people said, don't let God speak to us anymore. Hey, Moses, you go talk to him and you tell us what he says. It's too scary. And uh, Moses went up and got the Ten Commandments and brought them back and, and much after that. In verse 14, you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them precepts, statutes, and laws by the hand of Moses, your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought them water out of the rock of their thirst and told them to go to possess the land which you had sworn to give them. So this is a history we're all very familiar with, isn't it? How to keep the Sabbath holy, and boy, the very first time they were going to enact that law, Remember a guy named Achan went and just picked up a few little tiny sticks to throw in the fire right there. Moses, what do we do? And they had to stone him to death for working on the Sabbath. It was a heavy thing. And then they ate bread that came right out of heaven. Every day God had manna on the ground. It means, what's that? That's what the word manna means in the Hebrew. What's that? Um, and they can make it in all kinds kinds of ways if they wanted to eat it and um, it was food from heaven and it was there every day except on the Friday they were to get twice as much and then there would be enough for Saturday because they weren't to work on the Sabbath and then on Sunday it would start back up again and um, and the Lord took care of them by bringing water out of rock when there was no water in the desert Moses the first time he hit the rock and water came out Later, they complained again, and this time Moses was told to speak to the rock, but he hit the rock again, and uh, water came out of the rock, but then Moses now couldn't go into the promised land because he made God look angry. He made God look like he was upset with his sheep when he wasn't. So to make it clear that that wasn't God because Moses was as God to the people representing his nature, um, God said, you're not going to go in the promised land. So everybody knows that I was not perturbed with them. That was you in your flesh, Moses. It wasn't me. Well, then in verse 16, but they had our fathers acted proudly. They hardened their necks, the stiff-necked people. They did not heed your commandments. They refused to obey, and they were not mindful of your wonders that you did among them. But they hardened their necks, and in their rebellion, they appointed a leader to return in their bondage. We're going to go back to Egypt. So they, they chose uh, Aaron's kids, Moses' nephews. Some of them rose up and spoke against Moses and Aaron, Korah, and Dathan, and her. And uh, they said, hey, we're going to go back to Egypt. There's garlics and leeks and onions, and I, we just got to have bad breath again. We got to get back there. And... Uh, and the Lord opened up the ground and sucked those guys down. And uh, so in their rebellion, they rejected God. They rejected Moses. They rejected Aaron, the priest. They rejected the ordinances. They wanted to go back to how things were in Egypt. You've got to be kidding me. They were killing you there. They were killing all your baby boys. Amazing how lost and blind we are. 
apart from God's spirit. But going down to verse 17, the second part of that verse, but you are God, ready to pardon, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abundant in kindness, and did not forsake them. Even when they made a molten calf for themselves and said, this is your God that brought you out of Egypt and worked great provocation. Yet in your manifold mercies, you did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud did not depart from them by day to lead them on the road, nor the pillar of fire by night to show them light and the way they should go. You also gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness. They lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. This is what's believed to be a disease where if you only eat a handful of foods or maybe all you have is one food, that you're not getting a balanced nutrition, uh, your body can, can have a, a sickness where the feet and the legs swell up from not having a balanced nutrition. But either way, God never let them go. God continued to have grace. God's mercy with a sinner is only equaled and perhaps outmatched by his patience with the saints and with you and me, Red Pass says. So in conclusion here, a couple of things. Let's think back in your life and remember all that God has done for you. I think we probably have a familiar story of God's blessing us, us sinning, rebelling, not responding to his goodness in a worthy way. We all probably have seasons where we walked away from God at points and, and then the final act of God's goodness and love and grace overwhelmed us and brought us back to himself. Isaiah 40, 11, a verse I've been meditating on these last few weeks. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. Isn't that the nature of our Lord? Gentle and lowly of heart. Secondly, let's sort of remember our own story. At first, I mean, let's remember our own story and how God has been faithful to us. No man shall have an excuse before God for a lot of reasons, but that's one of them. Number two, allow the word of God to affect us. I just love the fact that these children of Israel and Jerusalem had such tender hearts. Everything affected them. Everything they were confessing and repenting over. Everything was, was a dagger in their heart to just say, God, forgive me. Mold me, make me, put me back right where I need to be. The word of God can do that. That's why we need to be in the word every day. In John 15, 3, you are already clean, Jesus told his disciples, because of the word that I've been speaking all along to you guys over this three-year period. In Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, husbands love your wife just as Christ loved the church, gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with what? the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she should be holy and without blemish. You see that happening here. 
with the word of God and these Jews here in, in the book of Nehemiah, how they were so tender, how everything was convicting, everything was encouraging, everything was washing, everything was cleansing, everything was healing them. But they were willing to respond to God's word. Amen, amen.